0: Romans 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for for this time here, Lord. I pray that as we dig into your word, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would teach your people, That you would edify your people. That we would uh, just see Christ high and lifted up. That's what we're here for, Lord. And Mm -hmm. we just pray that as I bring forth your word, Lord, that you'd keep me faithful to your word and that you would make me invisible and people would see you high and lifted up. Not me. We just thank you for your word, for your spirit that's given us understanding of your word. And I just pray for an understanding this morning, in the name of Christ. Um, Before I start, the Zach's out there. I'll turn that key a little bit so the door doesn't swing open. So if he comes up to the door, one of y'all, just. Um, But today, so let's get into this Romans 9 and get back up a little bit, obviously, and do a little bit of review like we always do. Uh, there's not going to be much but you remember Romans 8 Paul taught us that nothing can separate us from the love of God he says there's now no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate us from the love of God and the natural response or objection to that in that first century would have been what about the Jews are they not being separated from the love of God right now because they were the, the gospel started going out to the Gentiles and God started saving the Gentiles. And we could we could look at other scriptures that teaches that God blinded the Jews in part. So the gospel starts going out to the Gentiles, and it looked like God's done with the Jews. So the question is: if nothing shall separate us from the love of God, why are the Jews being separated? And Paul goes on, this is Paul's answer to this question. Is not everybody that was Israel of Israel was Israel. Just because they were part of the nation of Israel did not mean that they were actually a true Jew, if you will. Romans chapter two, we saw that that the circumcision, which is inward, they had to be circumcised of their heart in order to be a true Jew. Just being circumcised physically did not make you a Jew any more than baptism makes you a Christian. That you Baptism just pictures something that's already happened within you of of being placed into Christ, being born again, being washed by the Spirit, And it's just a picture It doesn't make you a Christian. There's many baptized people out there that are not Christians. They just got wet. So this is Paul answering that question. He actually answers it for the next three chapters, 19 and 11. What about the Jews? And he deals with it for three chapters. Um, But you can see that he says it in... uh, Verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. And remember, we brought out that, you know, the Jews claimed we're Abraham's descendants. So we are, we're, we're the promised seed. But that wasn't the case. Jesus told them their father was the devil. And now we get to our text today. We saw last week that we, the, the children of promise are those who are in Christ. Christ was the seed. And you being in Christ are counted as Abraham's seed. And then we get to these texts here today. It says, for this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Which is my first point. The son of promise is the first point. The second point will be the disobedience of a father. the third point is the promise of a son so you have the son of promise the disobedience of a father and the promise of a son so the first point here the son of promise and as i mentioned last week paul has set up his foundation on the word of god it's not as though it has failed remember we we saw that last week it's not as though it came to none effect that paul starts his argument with The Word of God. That's his foundation. My foundation from whence I'm going to bring my argument is the Word of God and nothing else. And once again, right here, he goes to the Word of God to make his case. He doesn't simply use a nice, good, logical argument. But he goes to the Word. Let me make a little side point right here before I get to the point of what Paul was making. But when discussing theology, do you stay within the pages of Scripture? Or do you go to your favorite Bible teacher? Well, R.C. Sproul taught that, Or Paul Washer taught that. Or do we go to, to what the Scriptures teach? Now, I'm not saying those guys teach necessarily contrary to the Word of God, but can you prove your theology from the Scriptures? Or do we say, well, my pastor says this. Or do we say, the Word of God says this? Or do we go to our favorite philosopher? Or do we stick within the pages of Scripture? See, this, is a, this should be our practice, is to go to the Word of God to prove our point. Can men outside of the Word of God help us? Of course. But our standard is the Scriptures. Not what Charles Spurgeon taught, or Jonathan Edwards, or John Calvin, or Martin Luther, or John Gill, I love all those men's teachings. But they're, they're, not, they're not my foundation. I don't go to the Institutes of Christian religion by John Calvin to to get all my doctrine. My doctrine should come from the Word of God. And the Institutes is only as good as it is that it expounds on the Word of God. So the, those good teachers only as good as they rightly divide the Word. But the Word of God is our standard. And it's where we should go in all matters of faith and practice. And that's what Paul is doing here. That's why I bring up that little side point, because that's what Paul is doing here. He's not arguing that Gamaliel or Plato or Aristotle or anybody else is making this argument. He's arguing that this is straight from the Word of God. And I think that's important in our day, because too many arguments within theology are more philosophical in nature than theological. I won't get into those doctrines, but I know some of y'all know what I mean by that. However, as we've seen, sorry Ben, over and over in Romans, Paul clearly points back to his doctrine being in the Word of God. We've seen this throughout Romans. It's over and over just quoting the Old Testament to prove New Testament truth. That's what he's doing here, displaying that this doctrine is nothing new, but it's founded upon the Word of God in the Old Testament. So he goes to the Son of Promise. He just mentioned that it's the children of promise that are regarded as descendants. Then he takes our mind to the Son of Promise. There are actually two different words there in the Greek. You think he talks about the children of promise? Now he's talking about the Son of Promise. It's where it says, Sarah... Shall have a son. Let's actually see this promise by God to Abraham. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. We're going we're gonna to jump around Genesis a little bit here. Genesis 12 and verse 1. It says now the lord said to abram go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which i will show you and i will make you a great nation and i will bless you and make your name great and so shall you shall be a blessing and i will bless those that bless you and curse and the one who curses you i will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed that's the promise to abraham all families of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham. That's what it says. And wh- if you connect, this to what we t- learned last week. That who are those in Abraham? All those in Christ. Christ is Abraham's seed. Everybody that's in Christ is Abraham's seed, therefore descendants of Abraham. That's how all the families of the earth get blessed. It wasn't necessarily about Abraham, but it was about Christ. Turn up to chapter 13 here. In verse 14. It says, And the Lord said to Abram, Remember that his name is Abram still. Same guy. After Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if any man, anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. That's a big number, right? As I've said when we we were going through Romans chapter 4 and we were dealing with Abraham back there, we could all make a trip to the beach while we're going to the beach. Anybody care to count the... Uh, Sand? When we're out there, I'll get you a bucket of sand. You can count it all day. Just one bucket. He says his descendants are going to be more. How is that? The same, the same thing. You know how that is? In Christ. Not necessarily was Abraham. Abraham was was one that the promise was given that your seed, through your seed, all the families of the nations, or all the families of the earth, will, will be blessed. Your seed is Christ, and all those in Christ. Our Abraham seed. Let's turn up to chapter fifteen, verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, "Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great." And Abram said, "O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless and the heir of my house?" is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since thou hast given no no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, and he said to him so shall your descendants be what a promise let us remember abram was a moon worshiping pagan when god abram didn't have this nice life that he was he was living and doing all these christian things you know going to church and doing all this he was a moon worshiping pagan And God comes and takes him out of his land and says, look up at the sky. You see the stars? And just remember, they didn't have all the lights that we have now. Go out way out into the country and look up at the stars. You'll see way more stars than what you see here. But that's that's how it was. They didn't have all the lights. So when you look up at the stars, that's all you see. Everywhere. You can't count them. The same with the sand. That's how many descendants you'll have, Abram. He's like, man, I'm old. How's this? How am I gonna have that many kids? I'm 75 years old. We're gonna skip over it, but in Genesis 16, which is important, is where Abraham went to Hagar, his wife's handmaid, and had Ishmael. And then Genesis 17, he establishes the covenant of circumcision. Then promises Isaac look at verse 21 of, of chapter 17 But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year the promise Was through Isaac he already had Ishmael He already had another son, right, but the promise was through Isaac. That's what it says So just because you were Abraham's son did not mean you were a child of promise. Not only the, the Jews in Jesus' time were claiming we're the children of Abraham. What Paul's doing right here is showing even if you're a direct descendant of Abraham, that does not mean that you're a child of promise. Ishmael was not. And Paul establishes it. How does he establish it? From the word of God. He's establishing his doctrine from the Word of God. Ishmael Ishmael was not a child of promise, but Isaac was. And Paul goes actually even further than this. He says in verse 10, of Romans 9 there, he says, Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So now he goes to the next generation too. So he shows Abraham, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was not the child of promise, but he was the firstborn. Isaac was the child of promise. Then he goes to Isaac, who has twins. And we know from Romans 9, he goes in and shows that Even in those twins, it says one he loved and one he hated. So now he goes to Isaac, and Isaac's wife is Rebekah, and Paul makes it even bigger now. Ishmael was the firstborn, but was not the son of promise because he was born of Hagar. Who wasn't Abraham's wife? And now Paul goes even further and he uses Isaac, who is the son of promise, but he has twins by his wife. So Abram went out and did what he shouldn't have did, and went and got his wife's handmaid pregnant. And that, well, that that's kind of clear, right? But the, Isaac didn't do that. He had twins by his wife. So they were conceived at the same time by the same woman. Which would kind of throw a little monkey wrench in God's plan, right? Because then, shouldn't the heir go through the firstborn? But they're twins. So the first one's easy to figure out because Abraham went to his wife's handmaiden to have his son instead of his wife. So it, it's easy to figure out that Abraham going against the word of God to try to bring about the promise of God was a mistake. We can easily see why Ishmael was not the son of promise. But now it gets harder. Isaac didn't disobey. But he actually prayed that his wife would conceive. Because she was barren too. He prayed that she could conceive. And she did. And he brought forth twins by her. Now there's two lines. (laughs) So you go Abraham to, to Isaac. Because Ishmael was, if you will, illegitimate. And now Isaac has twins, so now all of a sudden there's two lines. So it must go through both sons, right? Well, turn up to chapter 25 of Genesis. 25 verse 19. It says, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamoram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Those are some hard words. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. You see that? He just prayed. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his, with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff, therefore I am fam- famished. Therefore he, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So Esau was the firstborn. Just like Ishmael was the firstborn, right? Ishmael was the firstborn, Isaac was the secondborn, but Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was the firstborn. Even though they were twins, Ishmael came out first. So he was the firstborn. So he was the rightful heir. But then he sells his birthright to Jacob. Meaning now Jacob is seen as the rightful heir. Jacob is now considered the firstborn. Esau was the firstborn, but he sold his birthright, so now Jacob is the firstborn. Listen to John Gill on this, when one talking about the firstborn. It says, "...which had many privileges annexed to it, as honor and authority in the family, next to, next to parents. A double portion of inheritance, some say the exercise of priesthood, but that is a question, the parental blessing, and especially in this, the promises of the Messiah and of inheritance of the land of Canaan, in which was typical of the heavenly inheritance. So the promise of the Messiah was going to come through Jacob now, because he was the rightful heir now. That's the, that that is what the promise was about. Abraham's promise of having seeds and descendants that that were more than stars of the sky was not about Abraham and his descendants. It was about Christ. It was about the Messiah that was going to come, and Abraham's. Son, Ishmael, was not the line through which it was to go. It was to go through Isaac. And then Isaac has, obviously, his twins. And Esau, being the firstborn, sells his birthright. So now it goes to Jacob. What's Jacob's name changed to? Israel. So truly, in this story, the elder shall serve the younger. The elder, Esau, shall serve the younger. Israel. Esau was a great nation, as God said. They were called the Edomites. That's what you... It actually says it in the text. Thus he was called Edom. They became the Edomites. Which don't exist anymore, by the way. Esau became a great nation, but he sold his birthright to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and he also became a great nation. Why? Because God... Protected those God made those nations, and He made them great. I would say, actually, and I, I don't think this is debatable, Israel was a greater nation than Edom. Ask anyone today if they heard of an Israelite, and then ask them if they heard of the Edomite. Because Edomites don't exist anymore; they were destroyed a long time ago. They didn't—they don't exist anymore. Israel still does. Israelites still do because God protects them. And he protected them back then for a reason. And that reason was to bring forth the Messiah. It was through that lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I say all of this to say, when Paul quotes these verses, he knows all the history and context around them. He knows I've said it many times. Paul, being a Pharisee, memorized the Old Covenant. He had to memorize. He knew all the history and context around these. But us 21st century Gentiles kind of need this stuff drilled into our heads. But we don't get it. But to sum up the point, Abraham had two sons. One out of disobedience and one out of trusting God. The latter was the son of promise. Isaac had two sons, both out of obedience, and yet the latter was the son of promise, which both times goes contrary to what the Jews held to. It was always the firstborn was the rightful heir. Both of those was the secondborn. So God doesn't go by the, the, the laws that man makes up, Right? The firstborn was the heir according to the Jews. But God used the secondborn in both of those cases. And the second one was through whom the promise was given. And why? We'll see that next week in verse 11. But first I have two things I want to bring out. So that we should learn from this example from Abraham and Isaac. Which is my second point. The second point is the disobedience of a father. Abraham tried to bring forth the promise of God by his own power We see that in Genesis 16 when when he brought about Ishmael through Hagar That was him trying to bring about a son by his own power God promises a seed to Abraham, which is at least implied in chapter 12 but then explicitly in chapter 13 when God says that all the land you shall see, I, I shall give it to you and to your descendants forever. Right? That he, had, he was going to have descendants, so there was a promise, an explicit promise to Abraham, that you're going to have a seed. So it was a clear promise of God to Abraham. God promised him a seed through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this, of course, would have been a great promise to Abraham. It was not something simple, but something great. Something that I would say, if we could put ourselves in their shoes or sandals or whatever you want to say, back then, something that was probably an encouragement to not only him, but also to his wife, who was barren. Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children. That's why Abraham went to Hagar, because my wife can't have children. God, you promised me a seed, and my wife can't have children. So he went to the handmaidens. She's barren, and he's old when God gives him the promise. Yet God promised him a seed. And the initial promise happened when Abraham was 75 years old. you imagine that? Most of us in here are probably like, I'm not even going to make it to 75. Abraham was 75 years old when God tells him, you're going to have a seed through which all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Look at the stars. You see all the stars? Your descendants are going to be more than that. And you're like, dude, I can barely get out of bed. I'm 75 years old. It was actually 10 years later in Genesis 16 when he had Ishmael. So he's 85 when he had Ishmael. So he waited 10 years for the promise of God. That ought to hit home with every single one of us. Us impatient. Microwave. We need microwave ovens and fast food. Or like we can't eat right but Abraham 10 years later God promised me something I waited 10 years he didn't provide it so I'm gonna go ahead and provide it by myself when instead he should have been waiting on the Lord but he acted by his own power and he not only acted by his own power he did so with a woman that was not his wife so he acted in disobedience it wasn't just his own power, but he acted in disobedience. God promised his son, and he was too impatient to wait, so he sinned in not trusting in the Lord. Let me bring this out of this too. The promise was of a son. Abraham, you will have a son. Ishmael was a son. So Abraham could have easily saw Ishmael as the son of promise. God promised me a son, there's my son. Abraham's thinking could have been, you know, he promised me a son, and now he's delivered. It just wasn't in the way that I was thinking that he was going to. Right? I didn't know that I was going to have to go to my, hand, my wife's handmaiden to have the son. And that's wrong thinking by Abraham if he did think that. And the reason that he should have known if he didn't is that he sinned in order to have him. He trusted in himself instead of God. So he should be able to do do from that that this wasn't the son of promise. And maybe he did. Let me point this out as well. Though God promised a son, and Abraham was given a son by Hagar, he wasn't the son of promise, though he looked like it. Now I'm not one to do this often, but sometimes trying to sound like one of these prosperity preachers or anything, but when you get something you think is a blessing, because it looks like a blessing, but then you find out later that it's not. That's what happened there. He was given a son. It looked like God promised me a son. There he is. It looks like the son of promise, but it wasn't. And sometimes we do that, Right? This is what Abraham went through. Ishmael was born. He was a son as well. So he was, he was a seed. God promised him a seed. God, you promised me a seed. I have a seed now. Ishmael. It looked as if it was the blessing Abraham was waiting for, but it wasn't. Because he acted in disobedience and really unbelief in gaining this son. Yet what he received looked exactly like what he was promised. It looked exactly like what he was promised. We ought not to be deceived into thinking that God is blessing us in our disobedience, even if it looks like blessing. Let me give you an example of this. Scripture states, and we, we probably all know this, Scripture says it rains on the just and the unjust, right? Matthew chapter 5. It rains on the just and the unjust. In other words... God provides for all of His creation. Whether you're a Christian or not, God provides for all of His creation. However, what is the end of the rain for the unjust? It's the same thing provided by God physically. However, it raining on the unjust, the end thereof is judgment and greater judgment. They have greater judgment because God brought forth rain. Because He gave them something they did not deserve and, and they used it and consumed it upon themselves and it brings forth greater judgment. Where it's a blessing to the just. It brings forth the same thing. It rains on the just and the unjust. On the unjust, it increases their judgment. On the just, it is a blessing. I know we throw the word blessing around all the time, to this, right, especially coming up next month, Thanksgiving, right? We got pumpkins and everything else. It says blessings. We just throw the word around. God blesses his people. It may seem like a blessing to the unjust, but it's actually increased judgment. For to whom much is given, much is required. How about the book of James? Y'all familiar with the the book of James where it says, of rich men? Let me, let me preface this. I looked it up because I, I, I've kind of known a little bit about it. But I looked up, if you're a single person right now making $20,000 a year, you're richer than 90% of the world. $20,000 a year. A single person making $20,000 a year, you're richer than, it was. it was like 90.6. You're richer than 90.6% of the world at $20,000. I put in $40,000, and then just two parents and two kids, and you're still richer than like 88% of the world at $40,000. Yeah. So when it says rich men, it's talking about us. It says of rich men, what what, what makes a man rich? Having much in this material world, right? If you would, that, that, that would be a good definition of it. So these are men or women who have much of the material world at their disposal. Would you consider that a blessing? Some would. There's a whole movement out there. Prosperity, preachers. that You've got to have money for it to be a blessing. God's going to bless you with money. We didn't bless Jesus with money in his ministry, right? He didn't have a place to lay his head. Maybe Jesus didn't have a much faith as these prosperity guys do. I say that tongue-in-cheek, obviously. What would you consider a blessing to have this world, material world, at your disposal? However, God says, they, talking about rich men, it says, rich men, that they, through their luxury, this is a direct quote, their luxury and self-indulgence have fatted their hearts for the day of slaughter. What a picture that is given, right? Rich men, God has given you all this stuff. Why did he give it to you? Because you're fattening yourself up for the day of slaughter. Is that a blessing? I don't think so. What a picture he gives of just like a cow that a farmer feeds his best grain to, right? The best food he can get her so he can fatten her up. What's the cow thinking? Obviously, we don't know what cows think. But this farmer must really love me because he's giving me the best of grain. And look, I'm so big. He's so cares for me. And then at the same time, that farmer, all he's thinking about is all the cheeseburgers and steaks he's about to have. Because he's going to slaughter. That's the picture of the rich man. The riches are fattening them up for when God slaughters them. That's a scary picture. And it's a really scary picture when you realize that every single one of us in here would have been considered rich. We live like kings compared to the men that wrote this. I say all of this to sink into our minds that just because it looks like a blessing... That doesn't mean it is. Abraham could have quite easily saw Ishmael. And he was a seed. And a son. And, and said Ishmael was the son of promise. He could have. Right? It looked like it. He was a seed. He was a son. And God promised me a seed and a son. And there he is. But he wasn't the son of promise. We, we should also learn from this. That we shouldn't expect God's blessings. In our disobedience if we're disobedient to the Word of God we should not expect God to bless us if God says not to do something and we do it to get something we want this should not be considered a blessing let me put it like this as one that was in sales for many years God commands us not to lie I was in car sales. So when I say car sales, y'all think liars probably. But God commands us not to lie. However, if I lie to make a sale so I can feed my family, that's okay, right? Absolutely not. God commands us not to lie. He doesn't say you can lie on certain occasions. He says thou shalt not lie. And he commands these things. Listen, he commands these things for our good, not his. He doesn't command you not to lie for his good. He commands you not to lie for your good. Is God not capable capable of providing for your family when you honor him, when you obey him? Of course he is. And that's where Abraham failed. He took it in his own hands to try to bring about the promise of God instead of trusting in God. I I got this I can do it my way let's move on here so we had a disobedient the disobedience of a father now we have the promise of a son So the first one was the son of promise which was Isaac this one is the promise of a son Isaac was the son of promise before Isaac was what do I mean by that? I'm glad you asked me. The promise happened in Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham was 75 years old. That's when the promise happened. When Abraham was 75 years old, God promised it. So to God, when He promised it, it was as good as done. I believe it was actually an eternal decree because I don't believe God makes any decree that's not an eternal decree. And he declares the end of the beginning, but God promised it, and therefore He would bring it about. If God said he's going to do it, it's going to happen. There was going to be a son of promise. God didn't just promise it and forget about it. He promised it because he was going to bring it about. Now, this is crazy, does. It wasn't until Abraham was 99 before she conceived. God promised it when he was 75. You're going to have a son. And it was between 99 and 100 that Abraham had the son. 25 years later. God promised me this 25 years later. He not only promised, it wasn't like he promised it when I was 10 and I was 35 when it came about. But he promised it when I was 75 and I was 100 when it came about. It was around 25 years after God promised to see that he delivered it. How many of us in here wait twenty five years? You know we pray about this stuff. We all we always go and taking prayers to the Lord. Maybe it's gonna be twenty five years before He answers that prayer. But guess what? If God promised it, he would deliver it. It was never a question to God. He's not only the one that makes these promises. He's the one that makes alive, makes men and women alive. He's the one if if you were to ever conceive it's because God brought that soul into existence. If God it's God that gives life and in the case of Abraham and Sarah he was old and she was barren. So God gave life to a man as the writer of Hebrews says, he was as good as dead when The promise happened. He was as good as dead when God told me to give him a son. And Sarah's womb was dead. And God brought life out. God brought life to that family when there was none. Why? Because he promised he would. And it was through the one he was bringing forth, Isaac, that he would send his son he promised Abraham a son, who therefore would have a son, and sons, and sons, and sons, and sons, and sons, and sons, until God sent forth his son. That's what the promise was actually for. This is why i said over and over. <laughs> now you're going to have me subconsciously thinking that every time I say it. That Abraham's seed was Christ. That's what Galatians chapter 3 tells us. That's the key to all of this. That's the key to all of it. It wasn't about Abraham. It wasn't about Isaac. It wasn't about Jacob. It wasn't about Esau or Ishmael either. It wasn't about Sarah or Rebecca either. It was about Christ. All of it was pointing to Christ. When he said, Look at, this, at the stars and count the stars, all those descendants were all of those that were going to be in Christ one day. Isaac was promised. Not simply to give this old couple a child. It wasn't like, I know you've waited this long, you guys are old, I know you wanted a child, and here's your child. That's not why the promise was given. The promise was given so God would send forth His Son through that line. The sovereign God didn't need to bite His fingernails and hope that they'd be able to conceive. I, I got, I, Abraham, I promised you a son. Oh, I hope you can really bring forth a son. I know you're old and your wife's barren. I hope you can do it. But God gives life. He's the one that made it happen. He made it happen. Isaac, in the mind of God, was already the son of promise before he ever existed. In chapter, Genesis chapter 12, when he says, I'm going to give you your descendants, Isaac was already in the mind of God. It was already done. He was already the son of promise. It wasn't as though they had Isaac. Then God chose Isaac. Because of something within Isaac or Abraham or Sarah. It was that God chose Isaac to be the son of promise before Isaac was actually even born. And I don't have time to expound on the next verse as I mentioned. Verse 11 of Romans chapter 9. But it clearly states this. Before the children were even born, before they had done any good or evil, that the purpose of election might stand. It is said, the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's what it says. And Paul tells us why too. It wasn't because God looked through the corridors of time. But it was that God may be glorified. God brought forth Isaac that he might be glorified. God brought forth Jacob and changed his name to Israel by, by whom the nation of Israel came forth, by whom the Messiah came out of to glorify his name. Not to glorify Israel, not to glorify Isaac, not to glorify Abraham, but to glorify himself. And he did it that he might display his power and his election. That's what Romans 9 started we're about to jump into that that God displaying his power in his election. God chose Isaac before he was born. (laughs) Could God not have just used Ishmael? I mean, he was already alive. And he was a son of Abraham. He was already a son of Abraham. Why didn't God just use Ishmael? Could he have? Yes, he could have. God can do whatever he wants to do. However, that was not the plan of God. His plan was Isaac, who didn't even exist yet, apart from in the mind of God. Wouldn't it have been easier just to use Ishmael? I mean, Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90, with a barren womb. Imagine ladies being 90 and having a baby. I mean, we, we may think, as humans, this, this, this would have been much easier, just you this, Ishmael, but nothing is too hard for God. God, he, he creates the worlds out of nothing, or creating a baby and old and almost dead people are one and the same. Whether, which, one, which one is the, harder for God, to create the world's ex nihilo out of nothing, or to create a baby out of a, a dead womb and an old man? God spoke. And it happened. And I know in our world we would say, well, Abraham, you already have a son, and Ishmael is 13 years old. So why do you need another one? Why, would, what, why do you need another one? You already have a son, you already have a seed. But God declared Isaac to be the son of the promise before Isaac ex- existed. And when God declares it, it will come to pass. And it, the declaration wasn't about Ishmael, but about Isaac. So Isaac was chosen to be the son of promise before he was even created. And what Paul was going to be teaching us is, so were you. You as a Christian, we're chosen to be a child of promise as we saw the week before. The children of promise are those who were found in Christ, who are those who are of the seed of Abraham. Because Christ is the seed of Abraham. If you're in Christ, you are the seed of Abraham. You are a child of promise and God chose you before you were even born. Before you ever existed. God didn't wait for you to be born and then make certain life decisions and then choose you. Because if that was the case, He would have never chosen you. I don't know about y'all's life but he chose me he would have to choose me in the jail cell because that's when he regenerated me was in the jail cell and i certainly didn't make the right life decisions i made all the wrong ones it says in ephesians 1 4 it says according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world God chose us Christians in him before the foundation of the world before you existed if you're a Christian God chose you before the foundation of the world means before the world ever existed Now before I close I want to bring this out He didn't just choose and save. There is a false religion out there that teaches that Islam teaches that that God chooses. He, they, they'll quote the same thing in Romans 9, where it says, He hardens whom He pardons and He, he uh, has mercy on whom He'll have mercy. Which is true. Apart from, God doesn't just do it whimsically, He doesn't just choose you and then save you. He actually had to do something. It would be unjust just to say, Jason, you're saved. That's it. He doesn't set aside his justice in saving his people. We have to realize that God is just. That's what Romans, Romans 3 that tells us. God is just. He cannot set aside his justice to save you. Justice must be paid. That's what justice... Justice is something that... It's when you earn a punishment. And that's what sin does. Sin is a breaking of a law that earns a punishment, and justice demands payment. There's no way around justice. That's what it is. And God is just. So he doesn't set aside his justice in saving his people. But because he keeps his promise with the patriarchs, he did so to send forth his son. God not only promised Abraham a son, but he promised the world a son. Right? And that promise came right after the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That enmity was Christ. He was going to crush the head of the, the serpent, of Satan. The seed is actually said in Matthew 1 He says his name shall be called Jesus For he shall save his people from their sins There's no it's salvation from sin. It's not just God saves, right? Oh, you know when you're out there preaching we're gonna be out there preaching on Saturday You can almost guarantee somebody goes Yeah, but God's forgiving That's not how it works. God doesn't just forgive payment must be made Sins have to be paid for it would be unjust for God to look over sin To simply forgive sin without justice being meted out is unjust and God is just And this is the reason for Jesus coming He came and fulfilled the law That law that we break that law that earned us justice. He came and fulfilled that law. He kept it It says he earned righteousness for us And he died under the full Weight of the wrath of the Father. It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He crushed him. Why? Because of our sins. He paid for sins in doing this, and he paid. Listen to this. This is the most comforting thing that could ever come across the ears of a saint. He paid for all of our sins, not 99 percent of them, not 99.9999 percent of them, 100 percent of them. But what about unbelief? Is that a sin? It surely is. He paid for unbelief too. He paid for all of it. What about the sins I'm going to do in 20 years? Paid for. Gone. Then he rose from the grave. it says in Romans 4, for our justification. He rose from the grave. He was was crushed for our sins, buried, and three days later rose from the grave. This is why we celebrate Resurrection Day every Sunday. Right? I know we, we, like, we like to celebrate it once a year. Yeah. We, we got to celebrate it every Sunday. He rose from the grave, defeating death and hell. And he ascended up to the right hand where he intercedes for the very ones he died for. As the high priest, Jesus is spoken of as the high priest in John 17. He makes his high priestly prayer. He says, I pray not for the world, but for those that you gave me. And those that the Father gave the Son are the ones that the Son died for and soaked up the wrath of the Father for. And then He intercedes for them. He acts as our priest. Then He sends forth the Spirit to awaken His people. And bring them out of their spiritual grave. To cause us to look upon Him for our justification. And to continue on in the faith. Until we're taking the glory to be with Him. And all of that was done by God and for God. And all of this was done because God chose you before the foundation of the world. Election, if you want to call it that, happened in eternity past. But the whole working out of salvation of God sending forth His Son and dying for sins and raising from the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father and sending forth the Spirit to to regenerate you and give you faith and repentance to believe upon Him were done in time. It was done in time to the ones that He chose from eternity past. The ones He chose before the foundation of the world. So you were created to be in Christ and serve Him. Y'all think about that. I know we in our day. Why, why am I here? Why, you know what am I supposed to do? It's easy. Serve Christ. You were created for that. That's the purpose for which you were created—is to serve Christ. Just as Isaac was created to be the son of promise, he had purpose and he served it. But God brought it about. Isaac didn't decide to be born. And to be the son of promise, did he? Like, in, in, in I don't know which one, in the eternity past, Isaac wasn't like, I'll be the son of promise. <laughs> Isaac didn't exist. He didn't choose that. Choose to be born or choose to be a child of promise. And neither did you just wake up one day and say, I'm going to decide to be born again today and become a child of promise. God does that to us, God causes all of it, and the glory goes to him. That's where Romans 9 is going to be taking us. We'll see it in the coming verses. I'm actually going to quote these coming verses and I'm going to close. In verses 15 and 16 of Romans 9 it says, He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. This is where Paul is taking us. But like I said last week as well, Paul's foundation is the word of God. And he establishes this argument from that foundation. He goes to the word of God to establish this argument, this, this, this proof that God keeps his covenant. That's what, the whole, that's what the whole picture is, right? That's what, if nothing shall separate us from the love of God, the love of God is talking about being in covenant with God. If we're in covenant with God and nothing can separate us from the covenant with God, what about the Jews? That's that's what the question he's answering, and he's he's establishing his, his argument against that from the word of God, from going to Abraham, whom the Jews would have claimed to be the first Jew, right? Their father. So, Paul's foundation is the word of God, and he establishes his argument from that foundation to prove that God keeps His covenant, that what he just said in Romans eight holds true because God is the one. Who promised it. Let's go into our application here. Our call to faith and repentance. Too. As I always do go to the unbelievers first. Though those people in here that don't know Christ. Or don't know if they know Christ. God. And I can say this with all confidence. God is commanding you to repent. And believe upon his son this morning. That true son of promise. He is the true son of promise. God is commanding you to repent and believe upon him this morning. God promised he'd send forth his son who would take away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. That was Jesus Christ and he promised it and he sent him and he came and he died for sins. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. And now he's commanding you not to sit in here and daydream about what's for lunch or what I did last night, what I'm going to do after services, boring service today. But to hear the word of God preached and believe it. That's why we're all here, every single one of us. There's no other reason this morning for any of us to be here but to hear the word of God preached, to sing songs to him, and to give him glory. Even as an unbeliever, this is a divine appointment. You're not here by accident, even if you don't want to be here, even if somebody had to drag you in here today, it's not an accident. God has you here to hear the word of God preached, and you've heard the gospel proclaimed, and now is the time to repent and believe, not later, not tomorrow, but now. Don't sit under the preaching of the word of God and go unchanged. Just like the reigning on the unjust brought forth greater judgment, you think the preaching of God's word into the ears of somebody who rejects it does not bring forth greater judgment? It most certainly does. So pray that God will give you faith and repentance to believe upon his son or your perish in your sins. And I guarantee there's not a Christian in here that wants to see anybody in this room in hell. Oh. I pray that you repent and believe upon Him today. He will save His people from their sins. And if you're His sheep, you will hear His voice and follow Him. Now to the believers here. Our call to faith and repentance as believers, because we're all called, always called to faith and repentance as believers, right? Like when you wake up tomorrow morning, you're called to faith and repentance. You're called to believe upon Christ and repent of your sins. Our call to faith and repentance this morning is to listen to the promises of God and believe them. Read God's Word. Soak in His promises and believe them. And I mean, really believe them. Not half hearted, not, like, not just giving lip service. Yeah, I believe that. A brother and I were speaking on the phone this week. And he said, I really do believe if I emptied out my bank account and gave it all to the kingdom of God, that God would still take care of me. That's, I'm not saying that's what we ought to do, but I'm saying that is showing belief. I actually do believe that. And I can demonstrate it. How can I demonstrate it? Because you can do something to demonstrate it. We should all believe this. I know we all say we do. We all would say, yes, I believe that. And go empty out your bank account and pour it into the kingdom. I'm not saying that because I want money. <laughs> I mean, doesn't God directly, he directly tells us that he will take care of us. That's a promise. It's a promise of God. If he could promise a son to a 75-year-old man and bring it about when he was 100 years old, with false teeth and everything. (laughs) He probably had wooden teeth at that time. But if he brought about a child to a 100-year-old man, and he tells you, I'll take care of you, and we don't believe that? God tells us we don't even need to think about what we should eat or drink. Or even your clothes. Listen, this this is what Jesus said right here. Look at the birds of the air. That they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into their barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? That's one simple promise. That's just one simple promise from God. Do we believe it? As I say often, the Word of God is full of promises for the ones in Christ. I often say that to also say that we're not promised of tomorrow. But the Word of God is full of promises to the ones who are in Christ. And we ought to be digging into them by reading His Word and then believing them. And I don't mean saying we believe in them, but actively living in obedience to them and watching God work. Have y'all done that before? You see a promise of God in the Word of God, and you're like, I'm going to prove that verse is true, and I'm going to do what it says and see what happens. And then you can look back and say, God is faithful. All glory goes to God. When you look back, I can look back a decade and see over and over again, God has practically kept his word in my life. If I look back 10 years, I see it. Year after year after year. He's kept his promises. You know what that makes you do when you see that? It makes you want to give him more. Give more to him. To lay down more for him. Because the blessing you receive is better than what you gave away. A quote just popped in my head. Was Jim Elliot? A man is no fool who gives away what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what this world is. We can give away what we can't keep to gain what we cannot lose. We want to lay down more for him. Because the blessing you receive is better than the one that you gave away. Do you believe that? I mean, Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. We all know that verse, right? We love that verse. We use it at Christmas time. But we use it on our weekly basis. When we see somebody in need, give to them. However, it's also promised that when you give, much more is given back. And it should go without saying. I'm not simply talking about money. I don't. I'm not. I'm not that guy. I know a lot of churches and ministries focus on money, but that's not our focus. I'm talking about your whole life, all of it. Not just money. Every single area of your life. Are you Are you willing to? You Do you want to give more? And when you do and you look back and you see God is faithful. He's blessed me so much. The more that I gave, the more that He is faithful to, to pour riches on top of riches on me. Well, I mean by every area, I mean maybe giving up that nice relaxing evening you had planned to give more to the kingdom. I mean giving up that time that you're thinking about watching a certain TV series to instead read through God's word just imagine if we did that this is why it's great to go back and read like the Puritans and the Reformers and stuff because they didn't have Netflix they couldn't just sit there and watch and, and binge watch we, they didn't, if you would have said binge watch in the 1600s they wouldn't have had a clue what you were talking about because they didn't have TVs they read the word of God I mean maybe giving up your convenience because maybe your brother or sister is in need I mean actually stepping out of your comfort zone and finding out if a brother or sister is in need. It's quite easy to not help brothers and sisters in need. We just don't talk to them. don't know what they need. Right? But that's not the church. Getting engaged in one another's life and giving up time that you'd be doing nothing for the kingdom and working together to grow his kingdom. That's what we ought to be doing. Now, these are some things. I'm sure you can think of others. But let's dig into God's word to see his promises and live in accordance with that. And the main promise being him giving his son. We should be thinking about that every day. My last point here the call to war. I know it's long, I think it feels like it. Call to war. In this promise to Abraham to have a seed. Is included, not just to see, but his descendants to be more than the stars of the sky and sand of the seashore. If you look out at the world right now, do, do you see that? I mean, is there so many Christians on earth right now that we can't count them that that they're more than the stars of the sky and more than the sand of the seashore? I, that's not. You don't see that now, right? You know why not? Well, God hasn't decreed for it to happen yet, but. Jesus said the fields are white, but the laborers are few. We're all laborers here. We're supposed to be laborers here. We have been given the gospel. God gave us the gospel. Why? So we can sit at home and talk about it with, with ourselves or just with our spouse? No, he gave us the gospel to advance his kingdom. To grow the kingdom. God has called you to labor for his kingdom, and we ought to be doing it. And by that I mean preaching the gospel and taking it to the ends of the earth. Are you doing this? I don't say this to brag or anything, but I'm going to use something in my life as an example. I created an apologetics website like 13 years ago. And in that, I have the ability to see where it reaches. I can get on there at any time and see who, what if somebody was looking at it in the United States, it tells me United States or whatever country. I'm telling you that the website, it's just a website. It's reached the world. I can get on it right now and show you this. It's not just the United States, it's the world. It's all over the place. I see it all over the place. China, uh, any place in Europe or Asia, any, any place. It's always out there. I always see 10 different nations that it's going to. And then you know what I do with it now? Nothing pay for it but guess what through that the gospel's going out to the world and i've had, actually had times well we had times where we were broke broke beyond broke and it was time to pay for that website and we actually had times when it came out automatically and it was like well there goes your christmas kids <laughs> But we have times where we're in I should just not pay this anymore. But then my mind goes, "What about that 12-year-old kid in China that come across my website and read the gospel, and the Lord used that to save them. Is that worth that hundred dollars? Most certainly is. The money I spend is worth that one. I use this to save." Not that, like I said, to brag upon myself, because I did this 13 years ago, and I don't really do anything with it now. I just let it sit. I write blogs for it, but that's, that's about it. I use this to say, what more can you do? What more can I do? Especially in our day, you can reach the world. Right here. You can reach the world right here. This, this thing, I hopefully pressed record. I couldn't, I couldn't remember if I pressed record or not. This thing will reach the world. What are we doing? Why not create something that will reach the world with the gospel while also reaching those around you? It means nothing if all the people around you know you as a fraud, but you can talk to people on the Internet. First focus on those people around you building up Christ in their lives, and then send forth that gospel message to the world. And take them with you. Your first ministry is your home, those around you. Then broaden out and start reaching the world. God.